From the early days of narrative filmmaking in the silent era, all the way up through the 1950s, there was an off-maligned subgenre of films pejoratively referred to as women's pictures, or even sometimes derided as women's weepies or three handkerchief films. And these films were defined roughly as any which centered on a female character and were driven more by emotions and societal relationships than a gripping plot. That's not to say that these weren't some outstanding movies with some legendary performances. Classics like Now Voyager, The Heiress, Mrs. Miniver, Adam's Rib, and a whole host of others were produced, packaged, and proliferated this way. Oh, and they were all directed by men. Almost exclusively, because of course they were. With very few exceptions, women didn't get to make movies, they just got movies made at them. While we thankfully stopped calling them women's films with the advent of second wave feminism, because it's kind of bonkers insulting and super fucking patronizing, this style of filmmaking never actually went away altogether, it just took on a much more feminist sensibility. Think Beaches or Steel Magnolias, Titanic, The Hours, or Fried Green Tomatoes. And maybe you're listening and saying, hey, I love that movie. That's a great movie. And unless you're talking about Titanic, you're right. I'm not saying they're bad, only that they continue a certain cinematic tradition of films that center on female leads struggling with their relationships or their expected place in society, or both. That's how they were made, and that's how they were marketed. Oh, and they were all directed by men. Today's film also follows in a lot of those traditions, except for that last one. Australian filmmaker and documentarian Gillian Armstrong is in the director's chair for this tale of a Scottish woman who goes undercover in Vichy, France during the Second World War as a British spy working with the French Resistance. And at first glance, it doesn't seem like it would belong in that dubious and outdated category. Sure, it's a film more driven by relationships than plot, and our female lead is torn between her sense of duty and purpose and the role women were expected to play in society. And yes, she has to choose between two equally dreamy yet disparate male archetypes. But it's got spies and Nazis and communists and resistance fighters getting mowed down in a hail of bullets and another guy gets his head blown off at point-blank range. Not the stuff you'd think to see in your standard weepy. So does this movie pull off being both a war film and a modern-day women's picture? It's a difficult balance to strike, but it has been struck well before in a few notable exceptions like Casablanca and Notorious and, a bit more recently, The English Patient. Or is this a case of trying to be both things and so failing to be either? War is hell. People make films about it. And we love to talk about them. So hop on the Hogwarts Express to watch the bad Dumbledore pretend to be French with a Marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director. As we discuss Gillian Armstrong's 2001 World War II harrowing romance between beautiful spies, starring Billy Crudup, Michael Gambon, and of course, the incomparable Kate Blanchett as Charlotte Gray. <laughs> Call it in. It's danger close.
Welcome back to Danger Close, a war film podcast. My name is Dan, and I'm here today, as usual, with my partners... Katie. And Liam. And today we're here to talk about a 2001 World War II spy-slash-resistance film called Charlotte Grey, after the main character. Katie's here with our mission briefing. Charlotte Grey was a confusing release for both critics and general audiences. It is a film about spies, a love triangle, World War II, and occupied France. A young Scottish woman, Charlotte Grey, is recruited into British spy efforts by the Special Operations Executive, better known as the SOE. She finds a lover in the Royal Air Force who is shot down, and then she convinces her superiors to send her to that area of France and becomes embroiled in the local resistance efforts while trying to pass on information. The cast gives it their all, but the script, pacing, and directing can't decide which style of filmmaking to embrace, so it kind of tries all of them at once. The film is based on a book by Sebastian Falk, and like most adaptations, this one is reportedly not the best. It received a limited worldwide release and ended up barely earning back its budget. Critics were not impressed with the film in general, despite their praise for Kate Blanchett, Billy Crudup, and Michael Gambon. Honestly, I entirely agree with the confusion around this film. It seems to me that the end product was more interested in appealing to someone rather than telling a specific story. So, in your personal opinion, did you think this was a spy movie, a romance, or both? Well, so here's the thing. I mean, what kind of spy movie are we talking? Because in the in the grand James Bondian tradition, Spy movies and romance movies, like, there's always been, like, a high sex content in spy movies to a certain extent. Yes. This, uh, I'm gonna lean spy. There is some romance aspect to it, but honestly, feels kind of fucking tacked on to me. Right? I have thoughts about this. You could take all the romance shit out of it, and it would not really alter materially the flow of the film if you take the romance out of the english patient you have a different movie if you take the romance out of charlotte gray you still have charlotte gray right yes yeah i mean i'll bring this up more than just now but i was thinking how this sort of feels like several movies and they weren't 100 percent sure which direction to go and so they kind of smashed the three concepts together hoping that it would be a cohesive riveting story but there's the real missions of the real person who is inspiring this entire character who the novel was written about and who was a real sas person which we'll talk about british special operations executive is soe sas is SAS, I think, preceded MI6. Yeah, they were the equivalent of the CIA in their time. This movie doesn't really cover her, so it doesn't do that. There are two love stories in this film. One is with the original guy she meets, Peter Gregory, the pilot. And then, obviously, uh, the other one is with Julien, the French communist resistance fighter played by Billy Crudup. Shout out Ashitaka. Yeah. And even there, I felt like every scene, not just with Billy Crudup in it, 
But with their love story in it, I was like, give me, yes, give me the conflict love story. Give me more of this. There's like this resistance. There's a sexual tension. There's all these kisses that don't mean shit because they're doing spy stuff. I'm like, this is the love story I want to hear about. <laughs> Not this bullshit with this pilot she met for five minutes who is like, whatever, yes. dude. Like, I can give a shit about that guy. And then there's a third film in here that is like about some actual spy shit and gadgetry and people being murdered in phone booths quietly and like that kind of stuff, you know? And I just feel like the movie doesn't really deliver on any of those three concepts, but they're constantly interwoven throughout the film. So I was confused the whole time as to what kind of movie this movie was trying to be, if that makes sense. I think this movie makes a lot more sense when you realize that it's from the director of Little Women. The original, the 1993? Yeah. Haven't there been 17 directors to that? The Winona Ryder, Susan Sarandon. Clara Danes. That is one of my favorite movies. I've watched that movie at least 70 times. I don't know. I've read the book. And I feel like her directing style is the absolute tits for Little Women. Yes. But I don't know that it works great for a World War II spy thriller. It's kind of like when uh, (laughs) with Captain America, the first Avenger, the first review I read of it was like, this was from the director of The Rocketeer. That tells you everything you need to know about whether or not you're going to like this movie. If you (laughs) like The Rocketeer, you're going to love this shit. If you hated The Rocketeer, this movie is not for you. Yeah. If you like Little Women, excellent chance you might like Charlotte Gray. Katie, how did you view it? I viewed this movie as a spy film that is about a woman who is a spy. And... (laughs) (laughs) Liam is laughing at me. Liam's losing it. This is a spy film about a woman who is a spy. The end. How many movies have you seen about that? Especially about uh, a spy that is not a Matahari, is not the slinky seductress, is not super badass. She is the everyday woman. I don't know. We did. Okay. So maybe super badass. We did. Atomic Blonde. Atomic Blonde, yes. for sure. For yep. for Danger Close Enough. And we haven't done another female spy movie, I don't think, but they're around. They are around. Right. I'm not saying they're not around, but I am saying that typically those kind of films fall into a, again, a Matahari. They are the the sexy, seductive spy who's incredibly capable and knows exactly how to handle every situation while looking perfect the whole damn time. Whereas this movie is about a very young woman who is thoughtlessly thrusting herself into a world she really is not prepared to handle out of some misguided sense of infatuation. Thinly described patriotism very thin and duty i think it's more of a sense of duty because that was definitely part of the british perspective of going to world mm-hmm. war Two. was you, you have to serve serve the country and that's not a story that we get a lot of and therefore it's not going to fall into a lot of those tropes and for me i think that is what is at the heart of the critical response which as i said was not good. <laughs> Abysmal. Critics fucking hated this movie other than Kate Blanchett, uh, the cinematography and the directing. And I think that's because they didn't know what to think of it. Did they glaze over Billy Crudup? Really? 
Oh, yeah. I thought he was so good. Billy Crudup gets mentioned, but nobody nobody gives him... I thought he was so good in this. I fu- I, I'm going to go out on a limb, just say it now. I fucking loved Billy Crudup in every scene that he's in. He's, he's sexier than I've ever seen Billy Crudup be. That's what I will give him. I don't know. He was pretty sexy and almost famous. But he was magnetic in this. He was sucking me in. Like, his eyes, the level of nuance that he was playing the part with, I was like... Oh, man, I can feel the sort of tortured existence that you live in right now because your country's occupied and you're pissed and you're trying to do something about it. But you still have real human feelings. You're still getting to have contact with this beautiful, interesting, intelligent woman uh, that's also like promised to someone else. There's just a lot there. And I feel like that comes out in his acting. Quick question, Katie, that's mildly off topic, but goes off of something that you said before. Who was the cinematographer on this? Who was the DP? Dion Beeb, who won the Oscar for Memoirs of a Geisha cinematography and was nominated for Chicago cinematography again. Okay. Did they also do Harry Potter? Like the first one? Mm, oh, they're, do- they're doing The Little Mermaid. The new one that's coming out. Because I swear to God, did the first Harry Potter movie just lift the train scenes from this? Because it looked like the Hogwarts Express going, like, pulling into Hogsmeade Station. No, I think that's just British love of trains. It was driving me crazy. So, the first shot of a train that we get, that is on that big L turn, elevated L turn, and you get the, what must have been helicopter at the time, because they didn't have drones with these kind of cameras. Right. You get the sweeping shot that moves to the right and circles the uh, locomotive, which I actually really loved. I loved it too, but I expected to see like uh, Ron's dad's flying car (laughs) just soaring past it out of nowhere. So the reason for that is that that is the Glennon Viaduct train in Scotland. And that is the same exact train that is shown in Harry Potter. Thank you. Okay. So I don't think it's the same shot. But it's the same angle, it's the same elevated piece of railway, same tunnel, all that stuff. Excellent, thank you. I am not going insane. That makes more sense. That makes me happy that I am not going insane for that reason. If I'm going (laughs) insane, it's for a different reason. I'm going to refer to uh, his research again, but just because it comes in handy now, Richard Stevens once again came through and did the research for this one. Thank you, Rich. And uh, he titled this one, Charlotte Gray, parentheses, or Harry Potter and the Nazi Resistance. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was pretty good. (laughs) Rich, that was beautiful. That is perfect. My biggest problem with this, I think, was the time that it was made. If we're saying biggest problems, my biggest problem is their choice to not either speak consistently in French accents or fucking subtitle it or something. (laughs) Hated that. No. Okay. Yeah. So perfect. That's that's actually what I'm going to talk about, because if this movie were lifted as is from from 2001 and put back in like 1946, that would not have bothered me. No, I agree. I agree. It would not have bothered me to watch a movie from like just after this era from like the 40s or like 1942 or something where it's like trying to jazz up the side, you know, Casablanca style. Exactly. You know, where it's you sort of understand that everybody's multilingual, but they're just not going to fucking mess with that. All the Germans are going to speak in like German accents and everybody else is going to sound British or American and it's fine. If there's anything that I think we can credit Inglorious Bastards with as a net positive 
to the cinematic universe of just everything, apart from Christoph Waltz being a, a movie star. That was the first time that I saw somebody really deal with that level of multilingual, like that polyglot kind of fuckery that is mm-hmm. happening in Inglorious Bastards. I would have right. loved to have seen in Charlotte Gray. Yeah, it, it got confusing because Charlotte speaks good French and studied it for years. Yet can't master a Scottish accent. And lived in France for her youth, I think is what they, they bring up. Right. But my point is she would be using English and French relatively interchangeably in the story. And I guess it's a minor point. It's more aesthetic than anything, but it still got a little confusing because I had to interpret, okay, when are these characters supposedly all speaking French together? And when are they speaking English? And when is it a mix? When is she turning to a Frenchman like Julian who speaks English and saying something to him in English that the person she's talking in front of can't understand because they speak French? Like all of that is lost because they chose to not have any foreign language except for the occasional Nazi that says shit in German. And that they do not subtitle. Scheiße. That's just, oh, yeah. It's just a, it was a, for me, it was a jarring choice just because they make such a huge deal. Oh, you speak perfect French. Oh, great. You, you can definitely pass for a French woman. And then we never actually hear her speak any French. Except for the bedroom scene at the very beginning with, uh, with pilot boyfriend. Which is where you want to bust out the French. So uh, this is a perfect opportunity. And I said it was going to get blue at some point that may or may not have made it into the podcast, but here it is. So this book in 1998, I believe when it was released, it won. Best porn novel. Close. No, very close. (laughs) It won the Bad Sex Awards. The Bad Sex in Fiction Award. (laughs) 1998. There's multiple different versions. It's the bad sex. There's the bad sex awards, and then there's the individual nominations within that. But this is like bad sex for a book. Like, goddamn. Yeah. As in it's badly written, or it's like, oh, that's bad. As in it's terribly and weirdly written. Yes. Oh, that's amazing. Yes. I read it, and it, it wasn't anything funny to read aloud. Otherwise, I absolutely would be willing to do it. But it, it was just, it was more awkward and really long to the point where you're like, what are you talking about? What is this? This is not sexual. It's more clinical at times. And yeah, it just does not work. I wanted to ask you guys, and Katie in particular, as a woman and as a feminist, I don't want to uh, assume offense by anyone, so I don't want to ask the question in that way. But a- as a dude, I had some of these feelings and I was like, hmm, I wonder how women feel watching this. I got this feeling as I was watching it that I was like, OK, cool. This is about a woman who did something brave and interesting and had to go through some crazy training and who knows what situations she got into. Like before I was watching the film, that's what I was thinking. And you have to have some strong motivation to do stuff like that, etc. And then it feels like the setup for her story is to make her fall in love super fast with this white toast pilot. And then like, meaning I just found him kind of boring. Like, you know, yeah, I'm like, okay, milk fine. Toast. I felt like they were, they were trying to set it up as this intelligent, savvy woman character who's going to like figure her way through something that she's not super good at yet. She's learning, etc. And then they immediately make all of her motivation about this dude that she fell in love with over like 
one evening and then is her entire motivation even to the point where like some of the lines in that scene i like almost threw up i was like come on do you mind see you didn't even say ouch you're brave and you're courageous you should be proud of it i'm just scared of you that's all no i want to be brave like you are just be yourself if i was myself I'd never let you go. And I was just like, who the fuck is writing this dialogue? And what the hell is going on right now? I feel like they took everything about the female character that could have been empowering and representative and interesting and something to look up to, which we know plenty of stories like that, and just kind of diluted all of it immediately. And then there are moments where it gets better throughout the film later. But at the beginning, I was very disappointed with the setup. How did you guys feel about that? Oh, see, I don't, um, I like my characters to be flawed and particularly my women characters. In movies like this, like Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman should be fucking empowering. Captain Marvel, stuff like that, absolutely. Hidden Figures, that kind of movie should be empowering. This is the kind of movie where I want to see Shades of Grey. I want to see, I mean, how many, how many World War II movies are there about, or war movies in general, where young men, because I think Kate Blanchett's, um, I mean, I think she was almost in her 30s when she made this. She was in her mid to late 20s when she made this. But the character is supposed to be much younger. Mm. The character is supposed to be in her very early 20s, if that. And therefore, it's totally reasonable to me that she finds it romantic. A and she gets interested in joining the, the SOE long before he flies out. And it's only once she finds out he's downed in France that she pushes because she wants to go to France. But she's already invested in this concept and has already talked to him about it. I did like seeing her go through boot camp. That was something I didn't I didn't expect to see in this movie. We've seen many, many stories of young men flitting off to war in the heat of the moment because they think it's beautiful and brave. And they find out the opposite just like she does so for me i was like all right i'm down with somebody making the stupid stupid thoughtless decision that somehow you're gonna go to france and just rescue your boyfriend mm -hmm. it's so patently false and then the end of the film really really bears that out and that i liked the end of it because of that so i felt that it was that young ego is so justified so I had a similar sort of reaction that Dan had, but in a different part. And that was that you're going to have this woman go join up, be a spy behind enemy lines. And the first thing you're going to do is make her a mother to these kids. That, that was where it got a little like, not weird, but just like a little, like really, you couldn't do anything, but saddle her with some children. If this were actually a true story, and it was like, oh, and then this woman went and rescued, like, tried to rescue these two kids. Like, if it was a part of a thing, sure. But, like, if it's just like, that's how you decided to write the story. I'm like, did you have to saddle her with a couple of children? Is it saddling Julian with the children? Because Julian's the one who chooses to take them in and to hide them. He does take them in, but she's the one who's, who's put in charge of them. She's caretaking for them as a cover for her to stay under the radar from the Vichys. She was going to stay at the as the housekeeper regardless. That was the point of that. Personally, I can't fault the writers for writing the reactions by other characters to her 
as if she were a woman at that time, because that's exactly what they're supposed to be doing. I don't mean that the character saddled her with the children. I meant that the script saddled her with the children. Yeah, I get that. I, and I see I see what you're saying, and I don't necessarily disagree. I don't think it's handled particularly well, honestly, but I also think that that is an incredibly good cover, The Housekeeper Nanny. It is. like It, it isn't glaring. It was like a little nagging thing in the back of my brain that was just like, really, you're going to send her to war and then like give her the kids? Come on, guys. So what Charlotte Gray talks about joining is called Fanny or the First Aid Nursing Yeomanry of the Princess Royals Volunteer Corps. Founded in 1907, it was formed as an all-women first aid organization. It was independent, voluntary organization, not officially attached to the military, but members operate as an officer corps. During World War II, Fannies were primarily deployed as radio officers, encryption specialists, wireless operators, radar operators, and personal assistants, drivers, coders, and decoders. The corps contained 6,000 women in World War II, 2,000 of which were in the British Special Operations Executive, or SOE, a precursor to modern special operations forces who waged guerrilla war in enemy-occupied territory working with resistance forces. 39 out of the 50 women sent into France by the SOE during the war were fannies. Women could move about more freely in the occupied territories because since over 1.6 million Frenchmen had been deported by the Germans into forced labor, male resistance fighters were dangerously conspicuous. 13 of the 39 women were captured and killed by the Gestapo. So let me stop there since it's well broken up into those initial talking points. There's one on Vichy France and one on the French resistance, which I can mention later. But because that is specifically mentioning this idea that women were particularly attractive as this type of spy because they were living in towns where the men had been cleared out. So a man would have been getting questioned and papers shown like left and right. You would have had to mm -hmm. fake a disability or make them way to, you know, age them in makeup to make them look like an old man or something like that to get around it. Right. Whereas a woman could just go around her business and like, you know, get a job and do whatever. So that makes sense. The woman who got arrested in in the cafe in the beginning, that was harrowing. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. um, I didn't fully understand why she had her hand off the package to her under the table, knowing that she was going to get arrested in like two seconds. Yeah, that was weird. That was really weird. Like, I didn't trust her after that. I can only guess that she assumed that she'd already been made. And she didn't want Charlotte or Dominique to get made as well. So she was like, I'll take all the risk on me and I'll just deal with it. I think that was my best reasoning. The only thing I could think of was like, okay, give the, give it to me so that if they search you too, you're not also going to get arrested. Right. And then you have two operatives and the stuff versus just one operative in the stuff. Right. Right. That's kind of that was my best guess. But it still didn't make a great deal of sense to me. Like Julian said, she should have just fucking kept walking. Like, what is her deal? Don't stop and chat. Well, <laughs> whose fault was that? Charlotte's fault. So once she gets to France and this is where the two boys come into it initially, she drops down and there's two boys wandering through whatever forest or vineyard or whatever that she lands in. And those are the two Jewish boys that she ends up taking care of later. She sent in, I think it's supposed to just be this quick mission. Like, just go in, hand this off, and come back home. You'll be there a day. And then it all goes to shit. She goes to meet her contact. Contact is already being chased by the police. 
they come in and Charlotte hands off the tubes, whatever they are, to Francoise, I believe the woman's name is. And then she's promptly arrested and taken away. So that throws a huge wrench into things. And Charlotte ends up having to find emergency accommodations to keep herself safe from the police. And I don't think the Gestapo are there at that point, right? I think this is still just the Vichy government. Just Vichy. Yeah, this is all Vichy France. So they're in the French state established by the Franco-German armistice of June 22nd, 1940, which as they very simply kind of expose in the plot later or at the beginning when uh, the one British guy is training all these women before they go off, he's got the map divided. And that's pretty much exactly what it was until November 42, when Germany and Italy completed their occupation of France and then they took over. But in the meantime, you had this Vichy government who I think the motivation and principle behind it is actually pretty well summed up by the bureaucrat that comes in later in the film when he Mm -hmm. says, Let me tell you something about collaboration. The aim of collaboration is, and always has been, to safeguard the independence of French citizens. It is our sincere belief that by cooperating with the occupier, we offer France the greatest chance of fulfilling her destiny. Indeed, I would go as far as to say, with my hand on my heart, that there is no greater act of patriotism than to collaborate. That's a very pragmatist approach, right? Yeah, and false. So false. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I did think that this movie probably depicted the the position of Vichy France warts and all. Like, obviously, they were they were either incorrect or just shitty or both. Why not both? But I thought that this movie depicted it probably better than most other movies that I've seen that have even like fleetingly touched on Vichy. Yeah, I don't think this is our first time really covering it at all. And it was interesting because it's something we think about all the time in the background, but we rarely actually see it in action where you're like, oh, these French soldiers are kind of acting like Nazis, but they're not really. And there's going to be wiggle room here and there. It just depends. Do you know this guy? Do you know his mother? You know, like that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. They're your local police force. I'm not an expert on the subject, but I think we want to be careful not to oversimplify things and be like, oh, yeah, the Vichy were either cowards or shitty, because I think that not cowards wrong or shitty. Like, I think they, they still had what this movie at least depicts is that in their collaboration, in their capitulation, they were still willing to like round up Jews and send them off for a quota just so that they didn't get the Nazis in there. Like, that's not good. Well, it's not good. But again, we're we're obviously talking about a situation where you're trying to pick the lesser of several evils and you're trying to gauge, like, how can we maintain some sort of status quo here? Right. And let's not leave out this as the 1940s. It was not a very uh, friendly to Jewish folks time. No. And I think this movie actually does a good job of showing that when they're like, Oh, yeah, I think they were right to send the teachers away. Like, I don't necessarily want Jews teaching my kids. Right. There was that kind of conversation that when when people think about like, oh, well, how could something like that happen here? Like, you could totally see that conversation happening here. Just change out gay for Jewish and like, right. ta-da. I've heard that conversation a lot in America. Yeah, I heard it last week. So, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. I agree, Liam. They did a good job of portraying that middle ground because there are definitely people like the young soldier who, when they take Julian's dad into custody mm-hmm. for being Jewish, 
she says can't let him go like that he needs clothes quickly right you know it's like not everybody is invested but they are complicit in a lot of ways for not saying no yeah in the movie it's not nearly that deep but in real life you know people make the choices they make because of vast network of circumstances that it's hard to look back on now with any kind of accuracy but in the film it tries to give us both perspectives on it at least a little bit right and i don't want to drag this point out too long because that's not really on topic for this film even though i'm sure we will cover you know schindler's list and holocaust and films set in the holocaust and that kind of thing where we talk about where the moral conundrums are more direct and like a part of the plot in the movie right but i think the important thing to remember when we're not talking about the overt perpetrators of something obviously the nazis are the causal factor here they're the ones that want jews to be round up etc when you're talking about the receiving end of it these this french government who has capitulated and is trying to cooperate to like make sure that country doesn't get destroyed or whatever i don't know i i find i have a hard time judging people so far away from my own situation because i think of the decisions in their own small way that people have to make in a town where cops show up at your house and say we know there are jews in this neighborhood next door we want you to point out what houses they're in if you don't tell us we're taking your family away right now you're never going to see them again right it's really easy to be like oh i would never be a rat or i would never turn this person in or whatever and i like to believe that about myself as well but i'm just saying in reality when someone can put your kids on the bad end of a gun and threaten to kill them or take them away from you i think there's no limit to like the kind of cooperation that people can give when you're like in survival mode so my point is in this type of chronic problematic situation i think what's driving people the most is not greed or callousness or any of those things i think it's survival for most people that's what they're chiefly keeping in mind yeah not everyone is renek yeah that guy's piece of shit garbage human trash i would agree What I think this film depicts well, though, is the shitty nature of a lot of it, where it's like, oh, well, at the very least, they're getting rid of this undesirable element that I didn't really like being here anyway. Or the manipulation tactic of, are these two boys really worth your father? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm thinking of like the, the side conversations that she hears while she's like walking through the town and you're sort of hearing about the kid's parents disappearance. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Right. Those attitudes are very much just part of polite political discussion that you could hear going on today. Yes. Regarding like, I don't know, kids in cages. Like, well, they probably should have just come here legally. Right. You know, like, well, or maybe fuck yourself. I don't want to get into a whole thing, but it's not unlike some conversations that you definitely do hear running around today. Yeah, it's not unrealistic at all. No. I think Katie brings up a great point that in that situation, just like anything else, people are on a spectrum. You have people like Rennick who are obviously manipulating the situation to their advantage as much as possible and leveraging things to get laid that, but come out on top in this situation and probably setting themselves up for after the war, like they're going to be able to stay in power, take power, you know, make money, whatever. There's always people like that. Right. Right. They're betting on that the Germans will win. And they're very, you know, callous Mm -hmm. about that. There's certainly that kind of human everywhere, as we all know. 
And that is that character. Mm-hmm. He's like pre-Gestapo. He was like the Gestapo before the Gestapo got there. He was even wearing like he was even wearing the hat from the dude in Indiana Jones. Yes, he's very he's very worm tongue. Oh man, he was like the creepiest of creepy characters. I kept trying to give it my best benefit of the doubt when he's like following her in the trail. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. I wonder what's going to come out of the plot here. And then I'm like, oh no, maybe he's going to be a good guy who's following her in the woods. I thought maybe he was going to be like, I have this, you know, illegal liquor operation and you can't be snooping around here. And that's, so good. you know, I thought it was going to be about money or something like that. And then it literally turns into him pointing a gun at her and saying you're gonna sleep with me or i'm gonna make sure your boys get taken away and i was like oh wow you went for like a thousand percent bad guy in this situation couldn't be worse really really hard to be worse (laughs) than that guy in that moment really shocked i was not shocked rather it was shocking it's like oh you did the obvious thing yeah yeah, there's a little bit of that like oh okay you're just going right for it (laughs) just no scruples whatsoever um question like, is that a period and not making a, a double entendre there, but like, would, would that have been an excuse that a woman in the 1940s gave to a potential assaulter? Yes. Oh, I'm not clean. I mean, that sounds reasonable to me. Yeah. I'm, I'm not clean down there. Yes. Does that work? It is a period reference. And yes, of course it works, Liam. <laughs> so those fans of Reddit who, who have ever been on r slash bad women's anatomy, let me tell you, <laughs> if you haven't, it's an education in how fucking stupid people are about how women's bodies work. And absolutely, it would have been a reason to, ugh, gross, they're all gross. Like, men are still like that today some women are still like that about themselves today for christ's sake so yes it absolutely was i'm on my period don't touch me just don't the other big person in this is julian who i don't think would have cared if it was dirty or not personally he was down all the all the time but you were talking about how much you love billy crudup in this dan and usually i don't really care for him as an actor because i feel like he kind of gives the same performance every time but this time it did work for me maybe it's because he's young and he gives us zero ashitaka vibes it's got really sultry eyes in this and gives a very french performance yeah he played a good french guy he's the only one making like any kind of effort really to do a french accent of the main cast yeah his accent was nice i think he's kind of gaunt like i was like god damn he's skinny like his cheeks are kind of sunken in i'm like all right appropriate Mm -hmm. for a peasant in france in 1942 this was same year or year after Almost Famous. Where are we in the uh, in the credit sense? Let's see. I would guess Almost Famous is like 97. No, that was like 99 to 2000. Almost Famous was 2000. So it would have been filmed about two years later. It was just so obvious. Like that was the part that I didn't care for is how obvious it is as to what's going to happen between the two of them. Like the smoldering looks start from second one between him and Kate Blanchett. And I was like, oh, okay. I'm a dirty communist. I'm a dirty, dirty, dirty communist. Uh, the communist aspect of this, I did not expect it to go the way it went. I mean, it just kind of said it, though. Like, it was, they didn't really get into, like, dialectics or anything. No, no, I mean that, so as she's building this relationship with Julian and she kind of becomes like adjacent to this resistance group that is made up of communists, and then mm, halfway through, 
maybe a little further after the resistance blows up a train of German supplies. The Germans decide, all right, this is a problem. They come in and then we start getting the crackdown from the Germans who are cracking down on the Vichy government or sweeping it away and just doing their own thing in some instances. So I don't know about you guys, but I always had this thought of the French resistance as, I don't know, I guess kind of like the partisans in Italy, but relatively unified people who were just working underground to slowly like sleep with this soldier and kill him in his sleep and like poison this meal and do this and do that and just, you know, throw a wrench in things wherever they could. So it turns out the history of the French Resistance is pretty interesting. On on June 18, 1940, Charles de Gaulle addressed the people of France from London. He called on the French people to continue to fight the Germans. In the north, of course, this meant direct opposition to the German occupying forces. In the south, this often meant opposition to the collaborative Vichy government. The French Resistance was an umbrella term which included numerous anti-German resistance movements based in France. Some were in contact with and took orders from the British SOE, some were communist resistance groups, some were loyal to de Gaulle, while others wanted regional independence. There was not one unified resistance force integrated into the overall Allied plan and operating from a unified chain of command. There were several bands of resistance groups with their own goals, ideals, etc. Fighting for France, or better put, fighting for their version of what they thought France should be. Yes. That makes a lot of sense. I think it tries to display that. This is where it starts to get pretty muddled because it tries to show us little bits and pieces of the different French attitudes to what's going on, like with having uh, Julian's dad played to very British effect by Michael Gambon, who just... The most (laughs) British man ever. Literally. Does not give a fuck that he is supposed to be a Frenchman. He's just rolling with his normal voice you know he's a veteran of world war one and hates the nazis as any you know red-blooded frenchman who fought in world war one probably would hate the germans invading their homeland yet again and we see the vichy side of things the manipulator side of things and then the communist side of things which communism was definitely a dividing factor in world war ii in a way that we don't necessarily think of it now i would say because we fought with russia ostensibly you know we were allies but it does come into play like it's come into play before like with Patton, where at the very end Patton gives that speech about how no we need to defeat the communists and all of that jazz did you guys see it coming that the it was it was england that destroyed the little communist french resistance group or no I don't know if I ever got that. So was it the the English that passed on the information to them about? Yes. Oh, about the plane landing thing. When everybody got gunned down, it was the Brits. Yeah, that was the English who leaked that to the Germans. Right, because her handler kind of alludes to it. Yes. I, I mean, he out and out says it and not so many words. Right. So you're saying they do all this to get six little communists? All right. You want to know who told the Germans about the drop? It could have been one of half a dozen people. An intercept. Someone in London. The butcher in Lesignac. Maybe me. Maybe you. So it's laid out that it's it's about defeating the communists instead, because at that point, 
it had become pretty clear that Germany was not going to win the war. Germany was losing the war and they were focusing on the next threat. The next war. Interesting. Yeah, I always think back in this period that you also have to consider who the word communist, like whose mouth that word is coming out of, because oh yeah, for most of the last century, like Jews and communists were often just like tandem words thrown around because it's like, oh yeah, you're a Jew. You must be a communist. You want to overthrow the government like off to jail with you or off to the train right. or whatever. Like communism. Yeah, it's like socialists, communists, anarchists, and Jews are all the same people. And queers. Yeah, and the queers. Can't have them in there. All those terms were used depending on the context to just kind of make someone an instant undesirable. And I think it's a smear. Yeah. And and communism, we know, was like that as well. But in this case, it is coming from the actual people involved in it themselves. So often in these situations, I feel like communist is just more left than the left. Whether they're the type of organization that can be, say, infiltrated by Russia and become like a puppet of a a bigger communist government, I think is like not necessarily what that implies because there were communist parties in Italy and Spain and France everywhere. Like the workers of the world, which is technically a communist party that is still a presence in Australia. Mm -hmm. They're called wobblies. I mean, all of Europe has (laughs) communist parties in their governments and a lot of them are have a p- spots in parliament it's not necessarily like the extremes that we think of it here in america in europe communism is viewed differently it's like being a progressive here or you know something like that where it's like okay that's a little weird but it's not like it is here where if you come out and say you're a communist you're gonna get you can get some looks yeah and some hate more than likely <laughs> most likely i did think that when we did win that shakes the barley this was another like those different political factions our resistance series yeah mm-hmm. was the the last time we really saw this kind of thing play out but i thought there it had a bit more nuance and was a little bit more i thought it was articulated better yes very much so in in that script versus this script whereas it's like we're communists and then it's like oh kill them yeah <laughs> yeah i i remember as there as she's having a discussion with her handler about them being and she says is this because they're communists i was like oh yeah they were communists weren't they they did say that yeah they said the word they didn't espouse any communist beliefs or anything but you know that's that's fine. It's it's a dog whistle. We'll just go with it. Like these guys just blew up a fucking train with great success. Right. Maybe we should just let them do their thing and just take their names down and shoot them later. Right. Exactly. That's the more reasonable. That's the CIA's way of doing things anyway. I think that it's interesting that it tries to incorporate all of this, but it's these little details is where the movie is try like you said earlier dan it's just it's trying to do a little too much i mean this is based on a book and from what i read i haven't read the book itself but i read some comparisons is that the film is a sped up version of the book yeah which it is, sounded very similar in plot for so sure. like a lot of the stuff is just kind of crammed together and that felt kind of accurate to me like with this bit about the communists and the jewish boys that kind of thing there's more going on here that we're just not seeing Mm -hmm. yeah speaking of the uh train assault i found that scene to be interesting because it didn't look like a scale model the entire time it looked like a real train and the lighting and the shot was great yeah fire does not scale well like that looked pretty good 
Water and fire, not not good. Well, and when the train was coming in still, there were some really great shots of the old steam locomotive blowing the steam under the bridge mm-hmm. as it came out. And the moon was behind the vapor or behind the steam. And so the lighting was just perfect for that shot. And then you see the tanks roll by and it's even a moment of, uh, I got nervous. I was like, oh, is he getting cold feet? Is he like not blowing up the train? Because you're seeing all these German tanks go by on the what do you call them on the wagons and then finally they blow up the train and the explosion is like great and looks good the editor messed something up in there where they edit one of the transitions really weird and it's like the uh, explosion like rewinds a quarter of a second and then the same piece of debris is like coming back towards the camera and i was like oh that was a i'm like who the fuck is checking this work like that was a really awkward editing mistake i missed that part it doesn't like ruin the scene but it was like the one glitch in a scene that i thought was overall really well done and they like you know, played it off really well. That scene did make me wonder, where is the best place to to blow up a train? Yeah, that's a good question. Like, as it's going, I was like, okay, so if I'm watching this... Sounds like a really complicated math problem. The best place to, like, press the plunger in, I would think would be, like, after the engine and the fuel car, coal or whatnot, that goes behind the main engine maybe after that one goes because then it's just like well the whole thing's fucked at that point right like you detach anything that they wanted to actually take with them right but they didn't they waited until like four tanks went by and i was like what about those tanks man i would assume that there'd be a cascade effect like if you blow up one tank it's right next to that other tank and that other tank's probably gonna blow up too and like do the chain thing oh come on this is a golden eye <laughs> <laughs> this was not a michael bay film where things just blow up because cuz there's got to be somebody out there who, who knows something about this when we post this on facebook please post in the comments and let us know your opinions on where do you where exactly is best if you have ever blown up a train where <laughs> no, did you do it don't admit it on the facebook group for the love of god totally admit it on the facebook group <laughs> it's fine just don't make any untoward references to Italians. <laughs> or waffles. You'll, or waffles. You'll catch a band. Definitely not waffles. Here's my educated guess just based on logic. Because I was thinking about this as I was watching the scene. And I've heard guys that have been out doing convoy operations in Iraq and talking about insurgent strategies and stuff. That when you're dealing with a column of vehicles, independent vehicles like Humvees, the strategy is blow up number one blow up number last and then everybody in the middle is stuck in between crossing fields of fire and the cars don't have enough room to maneuver so you basically are disabling the entire column with a train it's obviously different because it's all connected and the only power is in the very front so i think liam might actually have the right idea here (laughs) you can try and blow up the locomotive but the locomotive is also potentially could be a little reinforced just because of the war and the time period but it's heavy. Well, also it has a it has a boiler in it, so you want to reinforce the shit out of it. Yeah, it's got a lot of pressure on it, anyways. It's the heaviest, I, I would guess, most difficult to blow up part of the train. Meaning that if you skip that and you hit the first wagon, if the linkage goes, it doesn't even matter whether you properly blow up that wagon. It's going to detach that first wagon from the locomotive, and that part of the train is going to come to a stop, and then you can assault it or get derailed. Right. While the people in the locomotive have to make the decision, 
oh shit, what do we do? Do we stop and reverse and go back and try and help? Do we just get the fuck out of here and go into the next town and call the police there and get help there? Which is, so you're actually potentially getting rid of the locomotive and getting those people out of your hair too. I have no idea. That's just like me trying to logic my way through. I don't think the locomotive, I don't think the engine car is where the brunt of your problem is going to be coming from. Mm-hmm. That's mostly just going to be the engineer and the con- like the conductor like that. Most of your armed forces are going to be in the other cars. That's true. Right. And that's what I assumed they were blowing up because they waited for the, the tanks to pass and then they blew up cars on the train. And so I figured it's like, oh, they're probably killing the people because that's very precious resource that makes more sense well well, there was a lot of gunfire afterwards so like they didn't do a great job with that no the true story of nancy white mouse wake inspired sebastian falk's 1999 novel charlotte gray upon which this movie was based and you can go to the imdb trivia there's the first item on there but it really gives a good background on who the character is inspired by Australian Prime Minister Julia Gerard said Mrs. Wake was a truly remarkable individual whose selfless valor and tenacity will never be forgotten. Born in New Zealand but raised in Australia, she is credited with helping hundreds of Allied personnel escape from occupied France. Working as a journalist in Europe, she interviewed Adolf Hitler in Vienna in 1933 and then vowed to fight against his persecution of Jews. After the fall of France in 1940, Miss Wake became a French resistance courier and later a saboteur and spy, setting up escape routes and sabotaging German installations, saving hundreds of Allied lives. She worked for British Special Operations and was parachuted into France in April 1944 before D-Day to deliver weapons to French resistance fighters. At one point, she was top of the Gestapo's most wanted list. She was quoted as saying, freedom is the only thing worth living for. While I was doing that work, I used to think it didn't matter if I died, because without freedom, there was no point in living. It was only after the liberation of France that she learned her husband, French businessman Henry Fiocca, had been tortured and killed by the Gestapo for refusing to give her up. She was Australia's most decorated servicewoman and one of the most decorated Allied servicewomen of World War II. France awarded her its highest honor, the Légion d'Honneur, She also received Britain's George Medal and the U.S. Medal of Freedom. In 2004, she was made Companion of the Order of Australia. She died in London on August 8th, 2011, at the age of 98. So this is the enigmatization of her story. Basically, yes. That's what it sounds like. Like, why couldn't we have just had a movie about her? Exactly. Because this was a popular book, and that's how it got made into a movie. So after Rennick comes and uh, tries to blackmail sex out of Charlotte, they end up moving the boys to a different safe house, and Julian's father is suspected, I guess is the word, of being a Jew. And so they come and interrogate him. They threaten Julian and try to reveal where the boys are. He says, His grandparents were Jewish. And if that makes my father a Jew, then I'm Jewish too. And then they say the thing that I thought was a little weird. Actually, no. According to current regulations, you are only one-eighth Jewish. Which is not Jewish. It isn't? Since, since when, by the Nazi doctrine, is that not Jewish? I wouldn't know if that was historically accurate or not, because they seem to make a point to have that character say... According to current regulations, you're not Jewish. Yes, that was what threw me off, too. I was We'd have like, to look into that. Maybe at the time, 
either the Nazis had a certain more lenient definition of not Jewish or they weren't as aggressive in pursuing Jews in Vichy France because it was like logistically more difficult. And so they went after more Jewish people. I'm, I'm not 100 percent. I sure. assumed it was an excuse, honestly, to say, well, we're not going to arrest you. Mm. This is about your dad. So my my question is, they, and they mentioned this a couple of times, like, oh, this is your document of non-Jewishness. Yes. Yep. As part of like, you know, you often hear like papers, please, but they don't really go and passport and library card and not Jewish card and your driver's license. Like they don't normally like itemize the papers like that, but it seemed like his just didn't have enough stamps on it. You mean in the Mary Poppins scene where he's just dumping out everything in his life out of his pockets? That was great. Yeah, that was that was hilarious. Oh, I loved that. That was pretty great. I was like, that man is definitely a farmer because look at all that. Look at all that string he's got in his pocket and random bolts and stuff. He brings the junk drawer with him wherever he goes. Exactly. (laughs) It was great. But they looked at it and it was like, oh, I was having trouble following it. Was it that like it wasn't stamped properly or it was missing a stamp? I don't know how it could be stamped improperly. It was missing a stamp. They were saying that he was supposed to have a stamp identifying him as being Jewish. And that was my question. Like, is it is it you get a stamp for every generation away from it? And he was missing a stamp that way. And I was like, how long have they been tracking this? Or was it he supposed to get a stamp that said that he wasn't Jewish and he didn't have that one? Like, that was a little fuzzy to me. I mean, I'm way behind you because the whole time I was like, damn, I thought Jews had to have papers that said they were Jewish. I didn't know non-Jewish people had to have papers that proved you weren't Jewish. Yeah, no, you had to, apparently had to have papers that said you weren't Jewish. Oh, yes, that was absolutely a thing. Okay. You did. By Near the end of the war, my understanding is that they reached that level of you had to prove your lineage mm, okay. to not be Jewish. And if you had no papers at all, they just shot you. Right. And to identify, okay, you are of Jewish lineage. You may not be a practicing, mm, you know, Jewish right, right, person. Right. Let's identify things. The Nazis just loved categories to their own detriment. Yeah. And everybody else's. So this is where, this is where kind of the big scene happens the big climactic ending scene which one uh where they take <laughs> i know right? this is this is a lord of the rings level ending movie except not nearly so good they take away julian's dad they find the boys anyway they have yeah how did they do that did they ever say i assume they tortured the dad well i don't know i don't see him giving them up but no he's michael gambon he doesn't give up what he He's a stubborn old man. He's a stubborn old, quote-unquote, French farmer. (laughs) (laughs) The most British French farmer. Exactly. And here's where it all went weird for me, is where she and Julian escape. She sees the boys being taken away. They rendezvous at a church. And Julian is like, come away with me. Come away with me. And she's like, no, I must make it right. And I'm thinking, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And then what does she do? Fucking blow up the train. She writes a letter. That is from the little boy's mother and finds a way to give it to them on the train as they're as they and Julian's dad are being taken away to Poland. Auschwitz, presumably. Yeah, he did not look like a tortured man. He didn't. That was an that was an untortured Michael Gambon. So I still don't know how how they found those. <laughs> he still boys, had his but, fingernails. Yeah, I counted them. They were all there. And that just felt odd. We did get the catharsis of uh, of. Julian killing that dickhead. 
Oh, that was so awesome. Oh. I am so glad to see that guy get shot in the face. I was like, thank you, film. Oh, yeah. yeah. Of all the people that needed to get shot in the face, I was like, yeah, fuck that guy in particular. And you know what? I didn't trust that scamp Sophie from the beginning. <laughs> She's too damn nosy. I was going to say, like, what was the deal with the telephone operator? I felt like that was an unexplored character. Mm -hmm. I bet there's more to that one as well. I was really interested in her and I wanted to see how she either like turned out to be cool or turned out to be really shitty. And we never got either one of those things. She was just like, oh, you're going to have your hair cut off for you when when the Nazis leave. Like there were a lot of those girls in that scene. Yes. Like a lot of girls were going to get involuntarily shorn. Yes, they were. I just felt like that letter scene is just very weird. It is. She risks her life to do it, and it's just not the denouement you expect at that point. She writes them a letter, so it's okay. And you don't see those kids again. Nope. So... Or hear anything about them. And they're going to Poland, so... So that's not good. No. I'm going to go out on a limb and defend her action a little bit. I think that... In the same way she rushed to make sure that the old man had a little go bag with him to, you know, Mm -hmm. keep warm and have a few sentimental items. She packed a picture in there for him. So she knew she wasn't getting those kids off the train and she knew it was too late. Right. I think in those last few moments she had, she must have asked herself, okay, these kids are on their own now to try and survive. I don't know if they're going to make it. Let me give them some hope and comfort at least, because if they have to die, at least they won't die without any hope. And that's when she writes the letter as their mother. And I was like, I respect that decision. I can appreciate that she decided to use those last few minutes to just do that and make their journey easier. I thought that was kind. I get the point, but it felt like it was not set up well Mm. with her emotional scene with Julian because it feels like she's going, she's really has to redeem herself. And like, it just did not feel as emotionally resonant as it needed to. And in a practical sense, dying with hope versus dying without it. Eh. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay, Werner Herzog. No, I'm just saying, like, it's, I don't know, sure, it's a nice thought to make you feel better. Kate Blanchett. It's going to do both. For children that age, I think they're supposed to be like five and seven. They still believe in magic, I would assume. Pretend you're talking about people who have live, warm, beating hearts in their chest, Liam. I know you have a hard time with this concept, but just... It's really difficult for me. I don't understand that it's like, I mean... Sorry, I'm I'm much more of the... So have you guys seen uh, Lion in Winter? No. No. There's a conversation about it at the end. It's like, well, he's... He'll get no satisfaction out of me. He isn't going to see me beg. My you chivalric fool, as if the way one fell down mattered. When the fall is all there is, it matters. That's the kind of, like, debate that I'm... That I, I take part in, where it's like, uh, it doesn't matter if they have hope. Right, but that kind of nihilism is the shit that'll stop you from ever getting out of bed in the morning in the first place. Because you're like, you're gonna die anyways. They're about to die in Auschwitz. Like, that letter's not... Sure, okay. This is why he doesn't like Life is Beautiful. Right. I don't like Life is Beautiful, and I think it sucks. And the truth is that 
there were survivors out of most camps. There were people who made it to the end of the war and then the Germans ran, the camps got liberated and that extra day right. of bread you might've gotten that kept you alive may have been the thing that allowed you to survive the ordeal in the first place. So we don't really know the type of impact that letter potentially could have. And I think that's certainly the thought in her mind as well. Of course, at this point, nobody involved in these situations at this level had any kind of clear idea of what a nazi death camp was like i would imagine right yeah outside of germany it wasn't known and then the movie takes what i think is a weird but satisfying twist in that it is clearly communicated to her by her um handler while she's in france that peter is dead Mm -hmm. he died in the plane crash shows her a picture of his body of a body right well she assumes it's his body right so after she gets the boys the letter, she somehow makes it back to London and is working as a more standard aid worker. And then she receives a letter from Peter and turns out, no, that was the navigator. He's been alive this whole time. What were you doing, honey, is kind of the attitude he has. And I think that it chooses to show how she has changed because of this experience. And you see that the person who is in love with Peter who went to France is gone and never coming back. And there's no way, there is no way back, she says. That to me justifies the poor decision to go to France in the first place because it's a character growth moment. She is not the same person. Therefore, she's become more interesting. And I liked that part of it. I thought it was good that they show us that rather than just and scene with the train. So I have a question, and this is going back to closer to the beginning, so I apologize. But it was something that occurred to me towards the end. When she's on the phone with the person who tells her that he's alive Mm -hmm. and is hiding in that town, and he's like, I really can't say anything. And she's like, please. And he's like, oh, all right. Right. Is that how the intelligence community works? First of all, I don't think so. I don't think so either. (laughs) But second of all, it occurred to me later, like when she's talking to her handler and then again at the end, wait, did they tell her that on purpose to get her to go as part of her recruitment? I think that leaves that door open. Because it was like, like there was that whole conversation with the handler that was like, Oh, did you approach them? No, no, you didn't. They approached you, didn't they? Kind of outlining all these things that are like, no, this is how they go about doing it. Like, this is how they get us to come over here and risk our lives for this, that, and the other thing. Right. Here's the psychology behind their actions. Did they fucking tell her that he was alive when he was really dead? Or did they not know? Because that guy gave up the information super easy. Yeah. And you're just telling somebody that on the phone? From just her voice. You don't even know she's hot. (laughs) Yeah. Like, please. No, it's Kate Blanchett. She could talk most people into most things, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I'll tell you, that woman has some charisma. Damn, Kate Blanchett. You know what she doesn't have, though? A Scottish accent. No. I I don't even know why they made her Scottish since the original person's from Australia. There was no reason. Nope. None whatsoever. They just wanted the Harry Potter train shot. I guess so. Probably. They were like, man... This is going to look great in Harry Potter in a couple of years. (laughs) So the film then actually ends. And here's our final ending with after the war. She goes back to the the French village that she was stationed in. She finds Julian at the old family home and she tells him her real name. And then they passionately kiss. And I was like, oh, this got a little. I mean, I like it, but also I don't like it. I get it, but also 
I don't usually like those kinds of films. Like, I'm not big into that kind of sentiment because it feels exactly like that. Sentimental rather than Mm -hmm. emotional. Right. If that makes sense. So I was kind of... But I I forgave it because of the scene where it shows her character growth. And she's like, yeah, no, no, dude, I can't. I can't be reminded of this every day. I can't be reminded of all the terrible things I tried to do to. Right. I need to pull something good out of this experience. So I went back to the town where all the bad shit happened. I think she she can't be with Peter because of all of the bad things that resulted from her trying to save him. And trying okay. her harebrained rescue scheme. She would have felt too guilty to engage in that relationship, I guess. And she'd already she'd already mourned and accepted his right, loss right. and had moved on. That makes sense. And you can't you can't go back from that. But I still don't understand, like that would have been really awkward for me to go back to that town, right? Well, she's hoping to see Julian, the guy she actually loves. She's chasing another dude. Julian. Yeah. The better dude, sure. And I can see there's more of a real bond. With Julian, they fought sure. together, you know, whereas the first guy feels very, Peter feels very much like the fling. I mean, if you're going to make this about a love story, that is the much more compelling love story. By all means, go for it. Yeah. The problem, as I stated from the beginning, is that I feel that most of the characters' motivations are trying to spin off of this love story. And, well, I'll save it for my breakdown, but that's what didn't work for me. And now it's time for The Breakdown, where we talk about what was the objective of this film, was it on target, and did we like it? Liam, I'm, I'm just dying to hear your thoughts on this one. Oh, really? I think I, I have suspicions of what Dan is going to say, but I'm really not quite sure where exactly you're going to go here. So let's hear it. You and me both. So let's find out. Yes. <laughs> My favorite breakdowns. So, oh, God, this movie is something. Prior to watching this movie, and I don't know why, I constantly and always got it confused because I've seen neither one of them uh, prior to this. I always got it confused with Dolores Claiborne. So (laughs) obviously the title did not work very well for me. One of these movies is much, much better than the other. (laughs) And probably a lot more fucked up. But yeah, I remember when this movie came out and it seemed interesting And I just never watched it. And now I've watched it. And I know why I didn't watch it before. (laughs) It it, it, it does. It has that very late 90s. I know this was early 2000, but it was like, it still has. This movie was made like four or five years too late. Like, I think this movie might have had some more traction if it had been made in 1997. It wouldn't have, like, mm-hmm. undug the juggernaut of Titanic. But, like, everybody was very into sentiment in that moment. And I think that this might have done a little bit better. The linguistics aspect, which is one of the most interesting parts of a spy story like this to me, being missing. This was made a little too late in the game, like we were talking about before, for that to work for me. If this had been a 1940s or maybe even a 1950s movie, I could have dealt with it. But by the time we're in the 90s and you have a lot of mainstream movies with subtitles, like we've already had Dances with Wolves, you know, where you have people speaking in English and in Lakota Sioux language. We can read at this point. Like, it's not just something that 
you like have to go to an art house foreign film kind of thing to be like, oh, well, I, I go to watch the subtitles, you know, like it's you could have done that and you didn't. Her accent constantly bothered me. And I think more than anything else is seeing Kate Blanchett in this role. I don't feel like this was a good role for Kate Blanchett, especially in the beginning. By the time she got there, it was it was more of a Kate Blanchett role by the end of the movie. But in the beginning where she's just like, I, for, I, I, I don't mean this to sound fucked up, but like giggling and doughy eyed and just like, oh, this man, like, you know, like, uh, you're so brave. I'm a hundred percent there with you. This woman was just nominated a couple of years earlier for playing fucking Queen Elizabeth. I don't know. It's like her stature to me at this point was a little bit elevated from what this role is. And I think if you went to this expecting to see Kate Blanchett from Elizabeth, I could see the disappointment. Nowadays, she was one of like the two good parts of Don't Look Up. I thought her performance in Don't Look Up was really compelling and different from a lot of the other things that I'd seen her do. It was a lot of fun. She has a great range, but Doughy-Eyed Recruit isn't in that range for her, for me. And, I mean, Michael Gambon was fine. I have some weird Michael Gambon baggage because the first thing I saw him in was when he took over as the bad Dumbledore I hate it. In the Harry Potter movies. And so I was already mm-hmm. like, who the fuck is this guy? And who let him do things? But then like so one of the second movies I saw him in was my least favorite movie of all time. Possibly. It's in the running anyway. Terminator? The cook, the thief, his wife and her lover. Oh, he's in that? I forgot about that. He is that. in that. And fuck that movie. That's the <laughs> grossest shit I've ever seen in my life. And it is Helen Mirren in it. And I still fucking hated it. She's the wife, isn't she? Yes, she is. And fuck that movie. It is the worst thing ever. I can't wait to someday compile all the clips of Liam going, and then such and such movie, fuck that movie too. And then fuck this And I'll just put them all together. Be just Liam do just a saying, super fuck cut this of movie it. like 80 times. Oh my God. It's the worst. I, I can't even. I even feel gross just talking about it. And that was like my second Michael Gambon experience. And then he has done a, a little bit in the, the Wes Anderson verse. I just have so much to say about the things that didn't work for this movie for me because there was a lot. But I also just think that it might just be that it's it was made in either a lot the wrong time or a little the wrong time. I think if this movie were made five years earlier, it would have done very well. If it had been made 50 years earlier, it would have done very well. But it just happened too late. As far as our questions. I have kind of like a cynical take on this. I think the objective of this movie was to be a a vehicle for Kate Blanchett in a period World War II. Like this, this feels very, and it's not quite cash grabby and it's not quite Oscar bait. Like I really have a hard time financially or like from a business perspective, figuring out why they made this movie. Let me throw a piece of trivia your way that might help your point. I don't know if you read this, but apparently Sebastian Fox for whatever input he may have had in writing the screenplay said that Kate Blanchett was like the only actress he had in mind at all for this role. So I don't know if that means that as he was writing, you know, like I, I don't know what that means in terms of when she took the job, but it was definitely sort of somewhat written for her. 
Yeah, and it and it just it feels like a vehicle for Kate Blanchett, but it's like, hey, we built you this nice car, but like it's like you built her a car, but it ended up being the equivalent of like stuffing her in the trunk of a Miata. Like, what the <laughs> fuck are you doing? This is this is not a Kate Blanchett vehicle. This is barely a vehicle. So, it, like, that's the only thing is I think they were trying to make a a sort of star vehicle for Kate Blanchett out of this World War II espionage romance thing when they could have just made a good movie instead of trying to like put all of these different elements together. They could have just made a movie about the woman that the book was ostensibly based on instead of making it an adaptation of this stupid fucking book. Mm -hmm. So no, I don't think it was on target. If I'm right about that being their objective, I think they failed and I can't imagine what else the objective would have been because it doesn't like highlight a whole bunch of new shit about the Holocaust or the plight of the Jews in France or anything World War II related. Like the, the one thing that it does better than I've seen in other movies that cover the same period is it does explain Vichy France a little bit better than most, Mm -hmm. but I don't think that was why they made the movie. No, I agree. They weren't like, Hey, let's really shine a light on Vichy France. That's not, this is not the the movie you make to shine a light on Vichy France. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was not very good. I didn't like it very much. I don't hate this movie. It was less than fine, but almost fine. Yeah, it was, it was, it was was sort of fine. Like, I don't know. It it really, it really kind of depends. Like on, I can't imagine recommending this to somebody. Right. Or watching it again on purpose. Yeah. You know, I, it is, it is not nearly as good as Little Women. So Jillian Armstrong has done better work than this. You know, and, and Kate Blanchett's done better work than this. Billy Crudup, I think, has done better. Like, everybody's done better work than this. This is, I, I, I have a hard time thinking of who I would necessarily recommend this movie to, but I also wouldn't be like, oh, don't fucking watch that. I don't know that you'll feel robbed of your time having watched this movie, but it's it's not going to add anything to your existence as a human being. Dan? Oh, man. Let me just bounce off of a few of Liam's points real quick, because I very enthusiastically agree with Liam for once, which is a rare occasion. (laughs) Yeah. I a hundred percent agree about Kate Blanchett. I think it was like taking a Ferrari in the slow lane and expecting the audience to clap. Even at her age in this, she feels so much more capable than the role that they gave her. And also, man, you know me, I don't say shit like this just to say it. I'm wondering if a woman writer would have done a much, I mean, obviously she would have had to be a decent writer, but this woman, especially in the first half of the film feels written by men very much. The entire, I'm a poor damsel. Don't leave me, you know, whatever. Like I get Katie's point that for a character who's in her early twenties and doesn't know anything, maybe it's not inaccurate or unrealistic, before the like film I thought I was going to get this like cool spy story. It was just such a weak foot to set out on. I do appreciate that. I feel the story and the character gets better as you go along. So it's kind of like disappointing at first, but there is an arc and it does improve, I think. But yeah, I agree with you that them painting themselves into a corner on obviously casting 
Kate Blanchett for this is like you could have picked so many other actresses who would have done just fine with this. You didn't need Kate Blanchett for this role. And it's additionally disappointing because you see it all there. You're like, oh, but she's so good. Like, why doesn't she have a more substantial role with more interesting twists and thoughts and decisions that she's making instead of it being kind of tropey? So, yeah, for me, I see three movies here. There's the spy film. There's the biopic. And there's the romance. There's these this underdeveloped love story that I wanted way less of one and way more of the other. I think for the unique role that a woman spy would have had in this particular spot in Europe at this particular time, you could make a phenomenal story that potentially could have even involved like there's sex in this movie or, you know, ostensibly sex. There's an actual love scene. There's the threat of blackmail rape. And then there's maybe some understood action with Billy Crudup. They never actually. No, there's the there's the weird let's get out of prison sex. Yeah, let's distract the guard. Yeah, we're going to we're going to dry hump. So the guard gets angry at us. Oh, right. There is that. So, OK, so we never get a real love scene with them. Although I'll tell you what, I was more sold on their tactical use of kissing in two different occasions. One was to escape the prison guard. One was when she was trying to not have him get shot. I thought their first kiss, I really liked that scene because it was like, oh, this is cool. This doesn't feel like someone pigeonholing a kiss into a scene where it doesn't belong. This is a character thinking on her feet and she's like, wow, he's actually not stopping. He's about to get MP40'd down in this town square right now in front of me. I have to absolutely do something now. And she grabs him and kisses him because she knows that's like the only thing in the moment that is going to force his attention, like shock him enough to force his attention away, get him to stop doing what he's passionately doing. And I really liked that choice. I was like, I like this way better as a first kiss than just some bland, like part of the love story, whatever. So... Yeah, to me, I think if you take the unique position a woman is in in this and make sex an interesting part of the story, not just in the love story, but I think here there's an opportunity to do sort of sex as a spy weapon. Like women spies had this and men did it too, but women especially like Matahari had this kind of ace up their sleeves that if they could you know, flirt with the right guy, get into the right situation, they were getting information, they could kill a high high up leader of you know the, the either the vichy police or a nazi there's all kinds of cool stories that you could write in there using sort of the toolkit and benefits that a woman would have had in this particular situation marlena dietrich actually did i tell you about this marlena dietrich had this secret plan to go fuck hitler to death that's hilarious yeah she wanted to like return to germany under the guise of oh i have to return to my homeland and support them and i'm a big movie star so maybe let me meet hitler and then i'm gonna seduce him and then i'm gonna kill him while we're having sex i did not know that that's quite the uh sacrifice to be willing to make marlita dietrich was a badass and she was only talked out of it because they were like you know that they'll kill your whole family that's still in germany if you do that and she was like fuck (laughs) damn it i have to think of something else also, Hitler wasn't into adult women. That's the other problem. Yeah, but it was Marlena Dietrich. <laughs> I mean, she was gorgeous. 
So I think, again, it's hard to pick what kind of movie were they trying to make because I feel this constant thread of almost kind of three different movies. But if they were going for, you know, to make a riveting spy film inspired by a real person, at least tangentially or in, in the second degree. No, I don't think they were on target because, again, it's just two all over the place i mean the three endings were kind of perfect because i was like here are my three films here are the three endings that they couldn't choose between and just did all three of my three seashells and they're very different in mood the train going through the tunnel and the screen fading to black and you knowing that the last action that she took was to write those boys that letter was a perfectly good ending. It was a little darker in tone than maybe the rest of this film and like not happy ending enough. But honestly, for a war film, I was like, that really fits. I could have liked seeing it there. Not the train going into the tunnel that we got at the end of North by Northwest. Not that train. Although that is what I thought of. I was like, well, this is a very different train ending. (laughs) (laughs) Although that was a perfectly good woman spy movie. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate what Katie is saying about what you see in Charlotte Gray's character's arc by the conversation that she has with Peter. But again, it was the love story in the character that I just did not give a shit about. And so I was like, please just remove this entirely from the end of the film. I do not need to see her like being over this dude in front of him. Like, <laughs> like I'm good. Dude. Like she could just be over him. And then if you want to, add the train ride and she goes to see uh julian i can kind of take it or leave it again i would have just preferred a, a starker ending and something more definitive there are positive things to pull out of this i really enjoyed the first five minutes actually i thought that the credit scene was one of the coolest credit scene i've seen like the music was really beautiful it was one of the best tracks on the score You know, the violins playing are really beautiful. The fields of tulips and purple flowers with the train, with the credits playing in the background. I thought, again, it was a really nice use of visuals to do the credits at the beginning of a film, which is a thing that's kind of died off now, but to not make it boring. And some of the ending parts uh, I felt similarly about. But I did think the opening credits were a little silly. It was just the way that they put the graphics up because it was like in the background in big letters, it just said costume. And then it was like costume designer and like edit. And it was just like a, a very like weird truncated version of what we were seeing. And then like the actual words. Yeah, it was a little 90s experimentalism for sure. But I don't know. It yes. worked for me. Like, again, some, <laughs> some of the cinematography in this is really pretty and I appreciated it. It was pretty much always competent, sometimes really great, just depending on the shot. So I did notice that and I appreciated it. But no, I did not like this movie. I mean, at this point, yeah, other than North by Northwest. Now I really want to find another movie about a female spy that is really kick ass. I guess we could just do Atomic Blonde on the regular feed because that movie was kick ass. Well, I do remember Friendly Fire did Black Book, and mm. I haven't watched that one yet. But and that's Verhoeven. Like I'll do a Verhoeven anytime, just because. Yeah, that that one sounded a lot more interesting than this one. But yeah, for me, my favorite part was Billy Crudup. I did not know that Billy Crudup had all that in him. I So he was your he was your crush in this one? He was not only my crush, but I thought he was the actor. I mean, yeah, I thought Michael Gambon killed it. He made every scene he was in more interesting just because of his delivery and his acting. And I was trying to pay attention to the dialogue. I'm like, no, it's his dialogue's fine, but I think he's really pulling it off. So yeah, there was some good acting in this film, but 
Katie. Uh, I am not as cynical as either one of you. And this might partially be because this is a story about a woman. And I am interested in seeing stories about lots of different kinds of women. And I think for me, it falls down in showing this objective because not because of Kate Blanchett's acting, but because in comparison, she was 30. I, I double checked. She was 30 when she was making this movie. She's like the equivalent of Stockard Channing playing a high school girl in Greece. Yeah, that didn't work either. It, it loses a lot of that vulnerability that a younger actress is going to have just because it also doesn't help that Kate Blanchett is like a confident statuesque goddess. Right. You know, she always looks so poised and self-assured, but she pulls it off acting wise. Right. Acting wise, she does a great job, but it's just like her face and her body and her age don't blend well with the kind of character that they are trying to get her to project. She's doing her best with what she can, but it's at times like jarring to see the difference. And I think the objective is to tell a story about a woman who was a spy in France and have it be something that was a uniquely a story that was unique to being a woman. This is not a story that you could just swip swap genders and it would be totally fine. Mm. This is very much a story from a woman's perspective. And I really appreciate that, even though it does take some pretty tropey aspects. There's a lot of lots and lots of romance in it, which I'm not against, but I'm not particularly like thrilled. (laughs) You know, it's not it's just not my not my genre. And I respect that a lot. I know we've all been interrupting each other during our breakdowns, which we normally try not to do. <laughs> but I just have this question that I feel like we're not going to get yeah. to ask if I don't ask it now, because it's one of the rare things that we all seem to be in agreement on. Who circa 2001 or today would we cast in this role who is not Kate Blanchett? Is there somebody that we could cast that would have made this movie work better for us? I mean, if you want the physically similar with comparable acting ability and would have been young enough for the role jessica chastain so jessica chastain is eight years younger so a 22 year old jessica chastain i think that's a that's my candidate that i offer up for the casting. that's fair all right i see it i love chastain i think she's amazing kristen stewart probably could have really rocked this it would have been a really good opportunity for her to stretch her skills now are we talking about like in 2001 or are we talking of like you were going to take her in her Twilight days and put her in this role or now? I would say a little older than Twilight. Okay, so like her, this would be her bounce back from Twilight. Yeah, yeah not not her now, because now she has that same thing. She is very self-assured, very self-confident. During that time, she would have been 11, so a little too young. In like four years, give me Millie Bobby Brown in this role, and she would fucking kill it yeah i could definitely see that too i would watch millie bobby brown good old mbb in a remake of this any day of the week or about the person who this movie is actually based on yes i think this movie gets a harsh rap because i think it is kind of pushed into the genre of oh this is a woman's film this is a movie made for the chicks it's a chick flick spy movie because there's romance and all of that and I think there's a lot more going on here. Like, in particular, Roger Ebert's review was pretty gross. I don't say that about Roger Ebert. Like, usually I have a good 
I, I have pretty good opinion of him, but he does use the word slut in Ooh, his review of this. Damn, Roger Ebert. And I was like, I'm sorry, sir, what? <laughs> like, it was weird. It was very, and it wasn't a, towards her. It was just this very weird review that felt antagonistic about the hmm. film. And it's easy to dismiss something like this out of hand. And in particular, because this movie doesn't necessarily do a lot of the things that I think it's trying to do very well. It focuses too much on the romance. It focuses... The whole story is about she goes to France to rescue her boyfriend. It's like, well, kind of. Yeah, not entirely. She was already going to go to France before this. This was just like the thing that pushed her. And the vast majority of the film is not about her trying to find her boyfriend. Yeah, like her plan for finding him is just go to France and hope. Right. And and ask around about him. But the vast <laughs> majority of her time there is spent trying to pull off you know, being a spy for the British and trying to help the French resistance succeed. But this is very much a movie of its time. In 2001, they didn't want that kind of movie. And this movie did not get a huge release. It was a very, I think the widest release in any country was 52 theaters. Like it, was, it was very small. So it did not get a lot of love. And it's probably one of the reasons why it's not very well remembered is because it just wasn't given a wide release. I really wish it was more on target, but I think because it does try to do too many things. To me, it's smacked of being um, bad adaptation rather than bad story because it's mm. trying to pull like, oh, this part of the book is good and this is good and this is good and this is good and tries to cram it all together. And it just does not. That does not work. You really have to pick for most books. You have to pick what you're trying to talk about in the book and go with that, especially with a spy movie. and. They kind of fall down on that. I'm not sure if I necessarily liked it. I didn't dislike it. Like, the whole time I was watching it, I wasn't distracted. I was like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen. Where are they going to go with this? How are they going to develop this character? And it was more like, I just naturally fell into, like, my critic watching, which is different than me mm -hmm. just sitting down to watch a movie. I'm more analytical about every scene and what's going on. And... I really enjoyed watching it from that perspective of like, what are they doing that's new? What are they doing that's old? How are they blending all of these things together? You know, what is the choices behind these characters and their motivations? And I do have someone who I would recommend it to a couple of people, but definitely my mom. My mom would really enjoy this movie and not because of the romance aspect, but because she really loves historical fiction and she really loves Kate Blanchett and she would find it interesting in the same way I do of like, oh, this isn't the kind of story we get to see of a woman who is maternal, who openly loves people and is still trying to do her bit, as it were. So I would recommend it to folks, but I would give it with the caveat of like, it's a little all over the place, but you're not going to get to see a perspective about this kind of person very often. And that's, I think, why we got a movie that's based on a book that's based on the idea of a particular actual woman spy, because it's a lot more complicated to tell that woman's actual story than it is to sand the rough edges off and make it more palatable for general audiences like this kind of movie does, especially in 2001 you could probably do something much more successfully now but then harvey weinstein didn't want to see that crap so it wasn't going to make it to the big screen but i don't think it's not worth watching for anyone who's interested in seeing that kind of thing 
about a not sexy badass spy, you want to see something a little different, I say it's worth giving it a watch. All right. There was Katie trying to sell the audience on the movie. It was a valiant effort. <laughs> I'm trying to sell. I'm just saying, I think Liam was really right earlier when he said, like, if you've watched Little Women. This is my fucking favorite episode. Oh, my God. I've been told that I was right by, like, everybody on this fucking podcast. You can suck it, haters. I was right on this one. You were. You were. When you said that, like, if you really like the movie Little Women, there's something in this for you. I grew up watching that movie. I'm a huge Louisa May Alcott fan. I've read most of her stuff. I fucking love that movie. That is my that is my my preferred little women mine too mine too and not just because that's where i fell in love with winona Ryder and christian bale christian ba- it has christian bale and eric stoltz yeah yeah it's scary it's great all around but i think it definitely is true that if you like that kind of thing you're probably going to like something like this because it is giving a much more feminine perspective on this kind of story so what are we doing next Next, we are going to do our first foray into a, I guess you could call it somewhat obscure war. It's certainly a short one. This is a 14-day conflict way in the South Atlantic called the Falklands War. Happened in 1982, and the film is called Tumbledown from 1988. Directed by Richard Eyre and written by Charles Wood. It was first made as a teleplay and then a made-for-TV BBC movie with Colin Firth in the lead as Lieutenant Robert Lawrence, a British infantryman who was shot and critically injured in the battle for Mount Tumbledown in this war. And it kind of covers his recovery and his struggles with PTSD, etc. I don't think it really does an overview of the war in general, but we will certainly look into the history and cover some of that for you. So that'll be an interesting one and our first time covering this conflict. In the meantime, you can join our podcast discussion group at uh, Danger Close Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook and You can come into all the conversations and memes and discussions about what we're talking about. And if you want to support the show and get our extra bonus feed where, again, we do have at least one kick-ass female spy movie on there. We've got two if you count North by Northwest. I would count two. Yes, that is two of them. You can go to DangerClosePod.com forward slash support for that. It's only four bucks a month and we're going on 11, 12 episodes at this point. Thanks for joining us. We will talk to you guys on the next one. Thanks, everybody. Bye.